Hi, and welcome to Conduct Her, where we are two sisters on a mission to amplify female voices on the podium. Join us as we interview leaders in the field of choral music, share resources, and build a community for current and future teacher conductors, all while exploring the gender divide. I'm Kira Starr. And I'm McKenna Stenson. And we are Conduct Her. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Conduct Her Podcast. We are so excited today to introduce Dr. Jay Saplon, um, and we're so grateful to you for being here with us today. Um, Kira is going to introduce a little bit about their professional background. Absolutely. So Dr. Jace Kaholokula Saplon serves as the Director of Choral Activities and Associate Professor of Choral Conducting and Music Teaching and Learning at Arizona State University, where they teach courses in graduate choral conducting and choral literature, conducts the ASU Concert Choir, and oversees the Graduate Choral Conducting Program. Known for their work in celebrating Pacifica choral traditions, they are the Artistic Director of the Na Wai Chamber Choir and the Na Mamo Vocal Ensemble. Hawaii-based vocal ensembles dedicated to the preservation and propagation of native choral performance. Their research focuses on decolonial approaches to the choral arts, queering conducting uh, conducting choral pedagogy, and trauma-informed rehearsal practices. Welcome, Dr. Saplan. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with y'all today. So at the onset of the podcast, we ask a couple questions just so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. And so our first question today is just tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about your upbringing and how you came to choral music. So I was raised in this tiny town on the big island of Hawaii called Keokaha. Uh, which is really, really, really close to uh, Hilo on the east side of Hawaii Island. It's a harbor town. And this particular town was known uh, for much like how Native Americans have reservations. Uh, Native Hawaiians have this, uh, have this uh, community uh, called um, Hawaiian homelands. So they're essentially ceded lands for Native Hawaiian people. Um, and so I grew up in, a, in that particular area and was born and raised um, in this incredible, vibrant community in which everyone knew each other, um, everyone took care of each other, and um, the entire neighborhood was my backyard and my home. Um, and uh, one of the most important things that I always remember is my time with my grandmother. In Kyoka, um, there's this humongous hula festival um, that is called the Merry Monarch Festival. Um, and the whole town comes alive. Um, and that's really where I grew a lot of my, uh, that's kind of how I step into my awareness of communal vocal music. Um, because my grandmother was like this matriarch of our neighborhood where she would bring all of us to sing at the Luau show for the one hotel on that side of the island because it was a really rural environment. Um, and she was also a hula practitioner, so she would teach us um, hula. But um, with throughout all of this upbringing of like cultural ritual and tradition, um, there was never a disconnect between what choral music was and what traditional Hawaiian 
vocal music was, what communal music was, because, you know, at this point in time, you know, what it meant to identify as Hawaiian meant that you could be Native Hawaiian, in, in which both your mother and your father was Native Hawaiian. You could be Native Hawaiian and Japanese, Native Hawaiian and Chinese, Native Hawaiian and Filipino, I know, smorgasbords of mixtures with, within all of those identities. And so within the course of a day, I just remember being so immersed within cultural melodic contours of languages throughout the Pacific Rim, um, in which, you know, at some point in time, I, I, we probably sang more than we spoke to each other. Um, and that was all because of this incredible community that my grandmother stood at the center of and facilitating all of these conversations, ensuring that all of our voices were heard, ensuring that all of our cultures were interconnected in service and in root, rootedness to the source culture of Hawaii. And so my upbringing was that, just being outside, um, being at my neighbor's houses, singing, dancing, and connecting all of that work to community. Wow, that is beautiful. What a, what an amazing experience to have your grandmother be at, not only at the center and forefront of your life, but at the at the forefront of the lives of everyone around you too. I mean, how incredible to have that matriarchal figure there. Um, yeah, that's that's amazing. You touched on this a little bit um, in terms of kind of your exposure to music and how you came to perhaps have an interest in this. Was there a specific event or a series of events that were really inspirational for you to choose choral conducting as your career? Oh, I don't think I was ever asked this question. You know, <laughs> So we're just cheering over here. We're like, we got one. Yes. I love, it. I love it. No, it's such a great question. So I think like kind of like how I brought up earlier about how I view choral music and communal vocal music in the same capacity. I kind of view this idea of like what choral conducting is in its and its reverent connection to community practice, uh, the building of community solution and communal healing. Um, like conducting, as we all know, is so much more than gesture, right? It is many hats, many identities, and this way of gracefully and effortlessly code switching within these identities that we're building to figure out what, what is most needed at this time, right? Like what components of self do I amplify that's still authentic to me? that is best suited to serve right now or is best suited to heal or provide solution. Um, and so I found that connection between what like my reverent call was in following the footsteps of my grandmother as a communal practitioner and a communal healer to choral conducting um, when I actually had a mountaintop moment as an undergraduate at the University of Hawaii. Um, and it was like, like you, you never, you always take for granted your perspective because sometimes when we are so like, when we dig our heels in, in the rehearsal process or when we are like, you know, immersed within score study, like coming up for air can be a gratifying, also scary and anxiety, um, driven experience. And so what this was for me is we were performing, we were set to perform with the Concordia 
the Concordia Choir by uh, led under Rene Clausen. And um, our, <laughs> I just remember being so overwhelmed because, you know, every, every region has a different sound, right? Because of the way that we speak and the way that we house our vowels within our bodies. Um, so I remember listening to Renee Clausen like guest conduct this particular Native Hawaiian piece called No Kabutio Honokohau, which was written by one of my heroes, Herb Mahelona, and it talks about the beauty of this area on Maui. And, you know, I have, I remember growing up and seeing many experiences in which cultures or identities that I connect to were um, not necessarily facilitated in the most reverent way or the most informed way, but for the first time as a undergraduate music education major, I saw this person who lives in, in Minnesota come in and talk about the beauty of Maui and his own experiences that he had there and linked every single phrase to his experience and telling us because he's conducting this piece with a bunch of Hawaiian undergraduate students, he thought it was important for him to go to Maui and come back and conduct it so that what he has to offer is connected to the Aina, the land that we stood on. And then I saw like this practice that I always grew up with of understanding the connection between the ground that you stand on, what you're singing and how it aids towards communal solution, decolonial practices, housed within this individual all the way from the Midwest and see how incredible, incredibly impactful it was, not only to myself, but to his own singers at Concordia. And so watching him conduct that piece that was housed within my own ancestral memory was a humongous takeaway for me and something that I'll never forget. And what really inspired me to say, this is what I wanna do for the rest of my life. Well, I already have um, half a page of notes. So <laughs> I'm so appreciative of everything that you just shared and just blown away um, by the ability you have to so elegantly say so many things about choral music that needs to be said in this moment. So I've written down communal vocal practice, community practice, communal healing. Uh, what components of self do I amplify at this time? That was mind blowing and something we talked about today in my graduate cohort. And if I had been able to say it that way, I think maybe my point would have made more sense. So I'm so appreciative of you unpacking that within that incredible story. Oh, thank you. So, you mentioned um, your matriarch, the grandmother figure, um, and a few other people along the way who've been influential in your journey. Is there anyone else or someone that you wanna expand on further who's been helpful or influential on your journey as a choral musician or just personal personal journey? Yeah, you know, I find it sad that my own academic lineage is a unique one because I would not be where I am today. I would not be able to move about the profession the way that I move about the profession uh, be, because, because I was raised and shaped by women. Um, you know, I owe so much of who I am to my doctoral and undergraduate mentor, Dr. Karen Kennedy. Um, I owe so much of who I am to uh, my time at the University of Oregon uh, with Dr. Sharon Paul. Um, I owe so much of who I am 
to this individual, Queen Kalani, who was the last reigning queen of Hawaii and a tremendous composer and someone that I am a reverent scholar of. Um, I mean, the <laughs> when we begin to understand how matriarchal choral music is in the, the understanding that communal vocal lullabies um, exist because of the fact that mothers had the bravery to sing to their child, to sing their stories to the next generation, to understand that like within many native and indigenous cultures, like the idea of cis women, um, they, they taught through song, right? Um, the idea that so many languages exist today because women um, found it important to sing their language into the ethos so that it could never be forgotten, so that their stories could always would be remembered. I mean, we as a profession would not exist today if it were not with, if it were not because of the sacrifices and the joy and the resilience of, 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 of women. Um, so um, I am just, if you're listening, like I pay, give you my most humblest gratitude, Sharon Paul, Karen Kennedy, Nola Nahulu, my grandmother, um, Leo Kalani, thank you so much for everything that you've done. Mm, that was incredible. I just, yeah, want to write down everything that you're saying, Jace. And also, I feel like you're reading our minds. You just keep bringing up phrases that like relate to the next questions that we're going to ask you. Um, and I just love that. And how special to have those women in your life and affecting you in a specifically musical way. Like that is incredibly powerful. And we were raised by two musicians. Both of our parents are in the profession. And um, I don't know, I really resonated to the the image of like our mom singing to us as children. And I don't think I really like unpacked how powerful that is. And um, yeah, I mean, that that's incredibly influential from the earliest age, like one of the first experiences you have on this earth. So that that is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I love that. <laughs> so our next question, I might jump around a little bit. Um, our next question is kind of a lot, so feel free to unpack as needed. Um, one of the main goals of our podcast is to amplify marginalized voices and specifically those of women, because we have seen and experienced this type of gender discrimination firsthand. And um, we were wondering if you would speak about the intersectionality of choral pedagogy, gender and sexuality, and um, feel free to just like take that and run with it. Yeah, I'll see you in the next two hours. Um, you know, I <laughs> well, I think intersectionality as a concept is something that I would most definitely like to see more of at the forefront of our conversation within the choral craft, first and foremost. I think we've come a long way in holding space and recognizing how we can be in better service to particular marginalized identities when it comes towards gender, sexual orientation, gender expression. Um, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, um, and have created pathways um, and have linked theory to practice in how the choral craft can be, you know, a catalyst for healing as opposed to a place for trauma, which, you know, we've all experienced, I think, 
within this particular conversation between the three of us. Um, but I, we often neglect to understand, and perhaps it's, this is because of our colonial drive for authenticity, for like recognizing that our, our, our aesthetic of excellence comes from a patriarchal lineage of sound, right? Um, but, <laughs> but I think when we view things through an intersectional component, we have no other choice but to embrace the other, right? When I think about intersectionality, when I think about decolonialization or decentering, I think to me, it's the radical act of love because there's no erasure involved. No one is getting canceled in the room. What we are instead asking for everyone involved is to consider their whole selves in connection to the collective conversation. So when I think about the intersectionality between choral music, gender, and sexuality, I look upon my a particular identity that I have as a native person, uh, which I call mahu, in which I am called because of my gender expression that was given to me by my grandmother to live in the middle between what is native, a native ideation of masculine and a native ideation of feminine, right? To realize that because of my gender expression, my responsibility as a musician is infinite in the caring and the rearing of the next generation of, of human beings. Because of my gender, because of my sexuality, be, I, I am therefore a choral conductor, a music educator, right? They walk hand in hand. And when, and, and that's not necessarily just because of my cultural tradition, right? I, I offer that as a transfer for everyone that's listening to realize because of the experiences that you have as uh, insert gender or sexual orientation here, those experiences do not push you away from your power and truth as a core music educator. Those experiences are crucial for you to access your own culturally responsive path towards being an excellent, caring, and loving choral practitioner in the profession. And so what that calls us to do is to realize that those pathways are unwritten, right? Yes, it's important to look, behind, look, look, look within the traditions of the canon, but not as a one-sided way of truth. What is it in, instead, as we must do it this way, the question needs to be reversed or completely erased and Instead, we have to ask, what does this look like in connection to my lineage, to my body, and to the incredible infrastructure of identities that I house within myself? Um, so like, that's what it means to be intersectional within choral music, gender, and sexuality. It calls us to regard ourselves as infinite and worthy of connection. So I feel like every director of choral activities in the country should listen to this podcast um, and that it would maybe be beneficial. Um, be, I mean, obviously beyond that, but I think that there's such a, um, in academia, people get into a position and stay in a position for a long time. 
as we know, these are coveted jobs and people hang around. And that's important because there's a lot to be learned from legacy and lineage and, um, you know, all that comes with that. That being said, I think the way that you just unpacked uh, some of that about um, not that the canon is not a one sided version of the truth and the intersection of the canon with your own background and lineage and lived experiences and being open to the lived experiences of others is the way of the future and the way that it should have been prior to now. Um, But hopefully, if you're listening, you can be part of this momentum moving forward to live the intersectionality and your truth and help others experience that as well. So that was beautifully said. (laughs) We have um, really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit through the internet. And one thing that as we were uh, learning about you, uh, we were wondering if you could unpack for our listeners the difference between colonized versus non-colonized spaces um, and how this type of environment has informed your identity um, and how it can inform the identity of others. Yeah, I think that's... That's a that's a difficult question to address, you know, because it when we think about a, a colonized or a colonial coral space versus a decolonized or a decolonial coral space, it really calls upon to look to, to, to take a look at the foundation that we build our pedagogy, our aesthetics, and our our, our beliefs upon. You know, because there are so many ways to be inclusive and diverse and, 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 and equity driven. But if these components are built upon a colonial frame, then your, your work towards diversity, equity, and inclusion will only benefit still a specific population, right? Um, and I think all of what I'm trying to say is connected to the larger question about how, what, how do you define choral music, right? What is that? What is that? What is that even? You know, every single day I find my definition of that art form, like it changes. The way I would have responded to that three years ago is so, is, is, that, I mean, I look upon that definition, I'm like, my goodness, thank goodness for a growth mindset. And <laughs> Amen. Yeah, and realizing that like, you know, it's always a process, right? And that's that's why I feel so called to this craft because it, it when we are choral musicking in, in the best way, we're constantly questioning our process. Um, and so, you know, in my opinion, you know, we, when we, if we have the bravery to regard the choral music as both a place of abundant joy and realizing that it can also be a site of horrific trauma and just, uh, and in which its practices can be uh, rooted within white supremacy and racism and patriarchal heteronormativity, uh, especially in regards to when we take a look at how choral music was used as a way to erase native languages and native bodies, especially as a way in which choral music was, was, was used to stereotype 
what is possible for a woman's future and how choral music was used to essentially erase LGBTQIA plus lives and rights, especially as we consider how choral music was used as a, an art form that created horrifying stereotypes amongst races and ethnicities and cultural traditions and heritages. We have to acknowledge that. We cannot shy away from that because if we try to disregard that truth, then we can't foster right relationships with our art form, right? And um, that's what a decolonial uh, connection to the choral craft is. It is regarding the entire history and being aware of that and not shying away from that so that we can have those conversations with, with our students, with our learners and with our singers so that we can create culturally sustaining practices. Decolonial, a decolonial choral class or a decolonial rehearsal is also taking a look at the podium and realizing that the podium is representative of colonial power of, I am on this symbol, right? And therefore, my connection to this symbol elevates my status within this particular rehearsal hierarchy. Um, and so like, how are we willing to dismantle the podium as well? Like, and in dismantling the podium, we're then called to answer, how does our pedagogy then redistribute power so that we're not necessarily a traditional Eurocentric conductor. Instead, we are a facilitator of, of, of musical truth, right? Absolutely. Um, and I, I really think that like, those are two fundamental differences. It's like, are we willing to regard the entirety of the history, right? And be honest about it. Are we willing to take a look at the podium and decenter power? And finally, are we willing to take a look at pedagogy and aesthetics? So one, one, one thing that I always say is like, if you wanna begin your journey towards decoloniality and you're looking through your rehearsal footage, one key component, decoloniality, according to uh, Nugi Watihongo, uh, is connection, reverent connection. And in my opinion, we can begin looking at that in a really practical way by looking through the rehearsal footage and asking ourselves, what is the ratio between statements and questions, right? Statements are a stopping point most of the time. Questions evoke connection, right? When we're facilitating learning and we're trying to find connection, that's done, that's done so through a Socratic method, right? So how do we build our rehearsal infrastructure that's housed within reverent inquiry, as opposed to, I did this score study, therefore in order to honor my time, I will use this time to connect you and show you that I looked at this. It's a grandiose methodology of show and tell, as opposed to, I, I studied the score with my students in mind. I studied the score because I know my students. And so as I'm looking at this score, I'm thinking about all of the questions I can ask Kekoa, Kimberly, Linda. So I'm like, ooh, 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 this is, a, this is a great point in which I could say, hey, let's sing this. Kekoa, you love uh, Ultimate Frisbee. I'm trying to find this phrase, how to shape this phrase. And I, I view like this, 
frisbee throw in my brain. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you view it as an expert, right? We're not necessarily dismantling entire infrastructure, right? Or, you know, it's just altering the path forward um, and leaving room for everyone. The last, the last thing, I'm so sorry, I could talk forever about this. Don't apologize. Working on that. <laughs> So as as are we all, and I think that we can be uh, we can hold each other accountable for that. It is. I, I for that. Yeah, and the last thing is like really taking a look at our aesthetics, and what I always task um, what I always task my graduate students with on their first day is asking two questions: What does it mean to be excellent? What does it mean? to sound excellent, right? And two, is, is your interpretation of excellence, does it require folks to be erased in the process? Or does it call folks to look inward and find a better connection about looking, looking inward and articulating outward, right? Like, I think we've, I think this is a conversation that is one of the most key components to come from a colonial to decolonial space that our profession is so terrified to have. And that is realizing that our excellence in so many ways calls upon folks to erase themselves, to code switch out of their bodies, to sound inauthentic to their lineage, to present their bodies in ways that erase their truth. So if we were to completely reframe our methodology of excellence and say, how can we be our best selves? How can this particular art form bring out those vulnerabilities so that you can walk out into this world with integrity and truth and collective power? That's what I, I think. That's, that's like amazing. We need to just like take 30 minutes and reflect on, <laughs> on everything you just said. <laughs> Uh, that, yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I love those questions. I know McKenna was writing them down to like ask her own students next year. I literally have <laughs> now we're at like a page and a half. So we're just, I've been continuing on. And one thing that I love that you said was this concept of not being able to create these changes in diversity, equity, and inclusion, if you are already operating in a colonialized space. And I think that is really, really powerful. And I've heard also the word sustainability that you said, like in terms of keeping this movement going forward, I've had multiple people say to me, I just worry that this is a pendulum in our field. I worry that the pendulum is swinging over here in terms of the diversity, equity and inclusion movement, and it's going to swing back this direction. But I think what you were saying about this concept of not not erasing everything that has happened, but rather acknowledging it, saying, what can I bring that is authentic to me and for my students from that era, from that past, have that difficult conversation and say, this happened, this is truth. You know, we're not ignoring it. We're simply expanding the concept of like what this field is and what is appropriate to perform and how is appropriate to how appropriate it is you know to to put on that performance like i just 
I love that. Uh, yeah, I just love everything that you said. And that's going to be my response now to the pendulum questioner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to interject here quickly, too, just to say I, I think that our field is a field of mentorship. Traditionally, mm-hmm. there's a lot of... Um, oh, I'm looking at this school because I want to work with this person or, oh, I'm looking at this program because I want to work with this person or I want to be a part of this legacy of people who have gone to XYZ institution. And I think that a lot of this can perpetuate some of the things that you were speaking about because that that is an important pillar of, of the field, this mentorship aspect um, but the way that you poise those questions to your graduate students is in turn not erasing them in the process. And that to me has been the hardest battle of graduate school as someone who took their oral exams today. Mm-hmm. I think that through this process time and time again, I have, have come back in, whether it be in tears or in joy or, or in, in whatever moment, um, and, and I've had to really sift and sieve and, and to say, but who am I? Like, who, who am I in all of this? And how can I be the best version of me for my students, for this music, to facilitate others feeling held in this space? And I am looking forward to... Um, borrowing your questions and sharing them and giving credit where credit is due because I hope to never allow people to feel erased. That's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, Your students at the University of Kansas are very, very lucky. Yeah. Yes, they are. (laughs) I think, you know, that's such a powerful point both of you folks have made. And that is like, I think in the regarding of mentorship, right? I mean, I believe that mentorship is is the foundation of a sustainable profession, right? I I view that role as both mentor and mentee so reverently because you know I also believe as a mentee I have a responsibility, right? I have a responsibility to take that knowledge and realize that that knowledge has to be relevant. And when we think about cultural relevance, cultural sustainability, uh, culturally responsive practices, that means like, you know, nothing is ever experienced within a monochromatic ideation of truth, right? What Karen told me five years ago, right, has to expand and evolve so that the sentiment of truth is there, but is applicable within today's context, right? We see that everywhere. Because, you know, in some ways, like, that's, that's how we innovate, but we can't necessarily, what, what I'm also, what I'm also a humongous supporter of is that we need to look at our past and realize that, like, yes, these, these human beings were people, they're people, right? And in the regarding of mentorship and realizing that they're people, we have to see the entire person. Uh, the strengths and the weaknesses, right? Because if our mentors can talk to us as their mentees and see us as whole people in our strengths and weaknesses, perhaps cyclical love, which is decolonial in its context, means that we too look back and afford them that exact same reverence of respect. I see you, I love you. And because I love you, I see you in all of your perfections and imperfections, right? And 
The other thing that I'll say about this whole mentorship process is that when I view this particular role, whether it is my work with an undergrad student, a graduate student, a teacher that's just starting out uh, in the profession, you know, so much of that work is about unlearning, helping folks to unlearn, right? Helping folks to realize that like so much of the profession, especially when it's housed within performance, we tend to wear mimicry as armor. We tend to take a look at these habits and, and, and these isms that we've gotten from previous generations and use that as armor, as a way from not regarding our particular truth or as a way for, for us to step in and realize that like, well, instead of using this particular hitch on three or instead of holding my gravity, my center of gravity in the way that I was taught to center my gravity or perhaps asking this question or doing this particular exercise, does this feel right to me in this moment to this particular group of people within the ground that I stand on? Because if that is in disconnect, you're acting out of colonial behavior as opposed to realizing that like, okay, I am infinite because of the trust my mentors have put into me. And so therefore I have to carry on this lineage, which is important, but realize that that next generation may exist in a different part of the country or the world. And so once I carry that lineage, if I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, like I'm not gonna necessarily create a, uh, a reenactment. These dreams have to somehow, somehow root itself in new soil, right? That's what mentorship can be. That's what decolonizing tradition means. It means taking a look at these isms and these behaviors and realizing, okay, but how does this serve in connection to the building of a next generation with an entirely new way of being? Man, l like, let's just lower back tattoo all of that. Like, <laughs> put that permanently on the body. <laughs> it would be the full bot like it would be fully on it um <laughs> i love that so much this is like such a kind of crass way of thinking about it but as you were speaking i was like there's there is this kind of idea of like squeezing us all into the same sleeve i've heard that said a lot of like this sleeve of sound or you know we all need to fit into this corporate concept and i don't know part of being in this field is being malleable Maybe that corporate concept is is accurate in that moment with that group of people on that particular stage where you are, but also maybe it's not. And maybe it changes with depending on what repertoire you're performing and who's on the stage with you. I mean, I just I love this concept of evolving and continuing to stay rooted and and take you know, take that knowledge that you have gleaned from those beautiful people in your life and also being able to say this is who I am. And this is how I'm going to be able to present this with my ensemble that we have together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. I'm getting back to our scheduled questions. <laughs> As we've taken a lovely tangent. Um, you've mentioned this phrase already a few times um, and we thought it was important to ask you about it. So, and this was actually something that I was just really 
um, taken with at your ACDA presentation and found very powerful. So would you talk a little bit about code switching specifically in our profession and perhaps speak about your specific experiences being a young queer indigenous music professor? Yeah, I'd love to talk about code switching. Um, so um, I define code switching as like a linguistic code, right? And sometimes that linguistic code is directly tied to a particular identity that we have, right? As a queer indigenous music professor, what that means to me is that when I'm at home, I'm on the phone with my grandmother, I'm speaking in Hawaiian, right? Um, there's a way that I talk to my husband, right? There's a way that I show up to a formal academic space and the type of English I decide to use at that point in time. Right. If I'm, you know, um, stepping into queer joy, right, I'm using a different type of language when I'm with my queer kin, right? Um, when I'm in a native space and I'm in the native space as an elder or as someone that is connecting to knowledge and sharing knowledge, there's a different way that I use my language. And language, of course, I'm not just talking about verbal communication, I'm talking about how we show up to our space, to our space, how we present, um, how, we, how we dress, how we use our bodies. And that also interrogates the choral craft too. Like, I think it's really important in the study of conducting and gesture that we look at our bodies as an infinite way of empathizing with a score, right? Not, at, not We're not always gonna use a 4-4 pattern. And then, you know, this is just me, this is just my opinion right? We're always going to use pattern. Sometimes we're going to conduct high. Sometimes we'll conduct low because our bodies are infinite because the score is infinite, right? I'm a humongous fan of that. And so when I think about code switching within the choral craft, what I often see or what I have seen and what my ancestors have seen is that we code switch out of ourselves, right? We code switch from one particular way of singing into another way of singing. Right? And sometimes that other way of singing is the totality of how we sing within that particular program or that particular, under that particular conductor. The way that we present our bodies is within one small room of what our nonverbal communication must look like, right? We must always look up, don't move, shoulders back, feet shoulder width apart, freeze. Right. I remember someone saying that to me and I was just like, I don't feel supported. <laughs> just why can't I breathe? <laughs> Does anyone like <laughs> right? But like, I mean, this yeah. is yeah. And I think like we often like code switching is a skill. And it's a skill that I think puts marginalized folks at an advantage. Because when we view the choral space as a colonial space or as a white space, that means that choral craft or classical music becomes an exercise for many marginalized folks to code switch out of themselves, out of their bodies and out of authenticity, right? That's a lot, right? But we also have to understand that as human beings, we all code switch. So what happens instead of using, viewing code switch, code switching as a disadvantage or as a way of erasure, we use code switching as a way that regards your strengths, 
as a way that regards your identities as part of a collective whole. And what happens in the programming of repertoire, what we see within our rehearsal ecosystem is a graceful, intricate way in which folks can code switch in safety, code switch into growth and learn through empathy within their cultural peripheries and connect and realize that they're building an entire ecosystem of code switching in ways that are informed, intercultural, and empathetic to each other. In other words, how do we, how do we grow and develop an empathetically informed global citizen of today? That is, the, that is an incredible learning outcome for this craft because we can view the, chor the choral craft as one that regards global communal vocal music, right? And so that's what I think code switching calls us to do is realizing, okay, can you code switch into this part in ways that feel good to your body? Can we check in about that? What does that look like? What does that mean to you as a human being? Does this particular piece call you to code switch out of authenticity? It does. Okay, pause. What do we have to do? What do I have to alter? What kind of questions do we need to have together as a learning community so that we can prepare ourselves to ensure that we don't lose ourselves in this work, but yet bring cultural nuance and respect to this particular score? If we have conversations like that, I think this whole idea of tokenism and appropriation will fall by the wayside. But what, that, what we have to be prepared to in exchange for that is realizing then, I'm so sorry, uh, I'm not sorry, I'm gonna take more time. Um, what we have to prepare for right now is realizing that this idea of what efficiency is, is colonial because these conversations take time. This is a skill that we have to build that is on the same platform, if not higher than tuning, sight singing, vocal technique, right? This is also now part of the wheelhouse of, of, of skills that we are responsible for. And so we have to take time to have these Socratic conversations, to ask students about how their identities are embodied within these works, to ask our students about their own methodology of code switching. Because if we can have those conversations and take the time for it, then students are so ready then to connect within their bodies to, as a queer person of color, this is what it means to me to tune a fifth, as opposed to just thinking that we're only responsible for a vocalis majoralis and a brain, right? We're not responsible for a trachea and a brain, we're responsible for a whole person. So why are we not teaching the entire individual, even if they're an undergraduate or a graduate student or someone in a community course or someone in a K-12. This is everybody. Everybody must be worthy of this pedagogical philosophy. And, I think and they will see that. They will value that and they will create better music with you, with each other because that time was taken. But there's the deep ingrained fear in the choral community that is I mean, there's many fears ingrained in the choral community. Let me rephrase that. 
but there is a fear and i think in particular a fear with generations above ours that mm -hmm. well what what about that rehearsal time and i think to your point we need to build so much more into our concept of what is successful choral pedagogy and take the frame away <laughs> so that we can be open to to creating more powerful music than we ever have before because we're creating music with the real people in front of us that we are not only supporting the the name that's in the score which is so often i think in academia oh we have to honor this we have to honor this tradition we do and who's singing it yep who's singing that's it right 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 so. because lineage does not exist in a one-sided way right lineage is about connection and regarding your connection if you're just trying to you know, find truth within a, do you, have you ever, oh, I forgot what this movie was. It's, it was about a famous chef, a, a fictional famous chef who's from India and his, oh my goodness, I'm going to kick myself if, because I'm going to remember it after this conversation. It's okay. Once um, you remember, we'll put it with, once we put the pot out, we'll put a little <laughs> promo for the film. So you're good. And the back, good. we're good. Right. We got so he, he, he's from India and his mom taught him everything he knows about cooking. And his mom said, sometimes all we do is recreate ghosts. The hundred foot journey. Kirstar in the chat. Amazing. <laughs> She's Just a good. brief Google. We got there. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like she says sometimes we recreate ghosts but if you regard yourself in the recipe making if you realize that you're given the responsibility to recreate this ghost within your own body that ghosts come alive like I teach at an institution currently at the University of Hawaii in which the majority of my students are either indigenous, uh, Asian American, or a combination of both, right? Beethoven, Brahms, and Mozart are important human beings to our program, but they're important because the pedagogy regards the connection between asking ourselves why is Mozart relevant to our community? Why is Bach relevant to our community, right? And so some of the questions that I ask them or some of the exercises that we do just so that we can practicalize this conversation is I ask them, okay, if, you're in a, if your grandmother and Brahms are in a room and your grandmother is listening to movement to a Believus Theater Waltz, Walter, like what would your grandmother say? Imagine that Brahms and your grandmother were alive. Can you construct a conversation? What does that look like? How is your grandmother responding in real time? So they were realizing. Go it's ahead. Not, it's not just then, oh, well, within my within my programming, you know, let's say I have five pieces. I'm gonna do, you know, four from the Western canon and then a fluff, which is something that I hear so many choir directors, oh well, I have to meet my Western canon needs. And then here's the fun song. And that is literally like everything that you are just saying. If and if that's the way that you've programmed before and you're listening to the podcast, 
Dr. Jay Saplan is here, and we should go back and listen to what we just talked about um, because there's so much to be unlearned, like you've talked about, so much to be unlearned, whether you're going into the field now, whether you're already in the field. Um, you know, I I think everyone in the field makes mistakes or doesn't, you know, makes choices and then reflects, like you said, growth mindset. Oh, how I've done this before, maybe I want to make some changes. I want to try some some new techniques, some new approaches. So I think if you're listening to this and maybe you're thinking like, oh my God, I've done all these things. Okay, well now we're learning and there's room for growth. Right. I mean, I think to, to talk about this concept of ghosts, like this idea of like, oh my goodness, if I don't do it like this, I, uh, I, I am falling short of my quest for excellence. Like, the desire to be perfect is a colonial ghost. The desire to be perfect is a colonial ghost. The, the drive to seek connection with your community of students is a decolonial joy, right? Like I always think about that in my compass because sometimes that's something that I combat all the time because it's ingrained with me because I was trained in all my entire graduate degree within a conservatory setting is like, oh my goodness, I have to do a Bach piece. But why? And how does it serve my students in using the choral craft and helping them become more better, empathetic, global citizens? You if I can respond to that question, then we'll pro program the Bach. If not, then we won't that faster. Yeah. I feel like you just sort of answered this question, but there may be something you want to expand upon. So something we were curious about from your perspective is what does it mean to be an ally um, and how can choir directors across the country be more inclusive and more open to all of our students and so what you just described this practice of asking questions of making sure that you're practicing with informed um, knowledge of who's in the room and uh, sharing their expertise within this process so that it's this cohesive open communication but is there anything else that you can that comes to mind when thinking about oh, yeah I mean there's many things there's so much more than just revamping your uniform policy I'm sorry like I think sometimes right now I'm a little concerned at how we're a little checkboxy with these are the three things I need to do to be inclusive right now right like it's so much more than the regarding of pronouns all that's important the regarding of like thinking and examining uniform policy like when I'm talking about like asking questions with your students, this is so much more than embedding five minutes of community building. This is a holistic undoing of how we engage with our singers in, in which our North Star is built upon the fact that you do not know everything and you do not have to know everything. Your North Star is how can I use inquiry to help the folks that are with me find truth and connection through my content area? That's it. So that means like, yes, do a Google form. Yes, take a look at your rehearsal, take a look at rehearsal footage and say, why, why did I spend like two minutes just saying and talking about and just living in error detection, like as opposed to realizing that we can right our wrongs through inquiry of joy. Be like, did you like that? <laughs> what are some ways, what are some ways that, that can be better? I mean, like we all know how to do this. 
What my recommendation is, is to do more of it, right? Live your life in inquiry. Um, another way, and another way that uh, I think is really important is like when we are decentering de the podium um, and we're regarding students as teachers to also realize that the entire community can be a part of the classroom ecosystem. You know, like this is so much more than just accessing culture bearers. It is realizing that the engaging of and with culture bearers is a collective effort, right? How do students want to engage with this particular culture bearer? How do students want to engage with this living composer, right? Are we prepared and do we find it important to realize that when we programming living, when we are programming living composers, that nine times out of 10, they want to be engaged with, right? There's that. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's about repositioning ourselves as a person with all the information to upload into the next generation, as opposed to a conduit of connection. And that's what's most rewarding about this, this field, this job. I was just saying to my colleague that, you know, teaching an individual voice lesson for me has such a very different feel than being in a room with a community of people and how I find the most joy from that connection. Like, I, and that is going to be hard and uncomfortable and ever changing, but that's our job. And that's why we do this to create global citizens. Like I, and you can start at the most basic level, like you said. I mean, think about your uniforms. Obviously, like you know, be be cool about pronouns. Like you know, let's get basic. But also, it it might require a little more self reflection for myself included. I'm kind of like, okay, I really liked at my high school. Our stage was super tiny, and I conducted on the floor. Like, it, and it was great because the students were front and center, and I wasn't. That, like I was beneath them and I've received some criticism for that because people are like oh well your chin is slightly lifted up I'm like yeah because I need to look at them you know <laughs> we need to have that contact together um but I like this idea of kind of dismantling the power on the podium and maybe it's not even necessarily fully getting rid of that but saying it is by me, am I standing on this podium simply to say I'm in charge? Or am I standing on this podium because I love and care about this group of people and I want to to receive this energy and give back even more of myself? Yeah. Yeah, you said it. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Right there. Oh, okay, well, we are running out of time. So we have <laughs> one more. <laughs> We could talk to you for hours, um, but we will not make you do that because you are a very busy person who is needed in many spaces. Um, so this is our long, our last long question for you today. And we've asked it to all of the people that we have interviewed on this podcast up to this point. And um, feel free to share what is comfortable or not. And you can be as specific as you would like. But would you share a time when you have faced discrimination within this field? And what suggestions do you have to others who might be trying to overcome this type of adversity? Wow. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have one. Um, I was debating between two. And so I think I'll pick one that I think would be most <clears throat> applicable. Excuse me, I'm just going to cough for a second. <clears throat> so um, I remember auditioning as a graduate student for um, a DMA program, a particular DMA program. And um, for those of us, um, well, I mean, this is the majority of everyone. So you're listening to this conversation. <coughs> Sorry, I'm just coughing my trauma. <laughs> I was like, it's fine if we need to cry. Like, we got it. Like, if we were there, we didn't touch you. We're good. We got that. I think we both cried today. So, like, just. It's all it... good. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. So I remember auditioning for a, a particular DMA program. Um, and this program was highly, is, is highly regarded. Um, and for those, I mean, this is a podcast. So um, if, for those of you who have never seen what I look like, um, I have traditional Hawaiian tattoos uh, throughout my right arm that extend all the way to right before my wrist. Um, and then I have a, uh, a wrist tattoo uh, uh, on my left arm um, that again was done in a traditional Hawaiian style. And so it is not a like, this is something like having my lineage and my story, my family story in my body is something that is an expectation, but something that I willingly stepped into with great joy because it's an honor for me to wear my family on my body. Um, but as we know, right, like tattoos, I think this is, this is only like circa 2000. 14. So not that long ago, right? There was a very, I mean, the conversations around tattoos is, is, was that it was still incredibly unprofessional um, and things like that. And um, I just remember looking at photos of myself in 2014 and realizing my goodness that I was, I would literally taking off like my suit and my shirt um, was like taking off armor. Um, and so here I am auditioning for this particular program. I have a suit on um, and I'm conducting a, uh, uh, I'm conducting a Brahms motet. Um, and, you know, as you're called to do. Um, and so my 20 minutes starts. Um, and I remember showing this gesture because it's Brahms um, and I was 24. Um, that it was this it, crescendoing to a fortissimo. And so I showed this really big inhalation that went past the outside of my body, went up to my shoulder. And then once I was about to give the downbeats, uh, this particular person could see that my suit arm um, exposed enough of my tattoo for it to be visible. And I was, was promptly asked to stop the rehearsal right before I gave the downbeat and was asked to sit down. Um, so this entire time I was like, my goodness, what just happened? Um, and once the entire conducting or the rehearsal portion of the audition was finished, um, this particular individual pulled me to the side into their office 
and said, it's such a shame that you have tattoos because I thought that you were doing quite well. My response was, I'm sorry, th these aren't, like these tattoos mean something culturally uh, to me. And the response to the best of my recollection was, it doesn't matter, you'll, they, you'll, you'll, you won't have a career uh, with what you have on your body. And that's really unfortunate. And so I took, a, I took a breath to realize what just happened, to realize that on the spot, I was rejected from a program, not because of my skill, in fact, was complimented on my skill, but what was, the reason why I didn't get into that DMA program was because of a cultural symbol that I had on my body, um, in which at that point in time, I was making a TA stipend and had to purchase a flight and a hotel. I was gonna say, you paid to go to yeah. this. You paid, you paid right. your way. You yeah. paid your way. I did. I did from Eugene all the way to this particular place in the country. And I just remember walking home and just wanting to leave the profession entirely. Because, you know, to audition for a DMA program, that is a significant decision in a human being's life, right? I mean, that is, you, you, at that point in time, I realized what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in higher education. I felt called to that work um, and made it my life's mission to, to, to never have anyone have to go through that again. Wow. Moment. And so I look back that I look back at that experience and I look at this reverent responsibility that I have in the, the teaching of teachers and in working with you know masters and doctoral level conductors and realizing that like that's such a sacred responsibility in what that role has in shaping the conversation or then what the next generation looks like. Um, and when it, that, that whole concept, I think, just really cemented this idea that, yes, we learn from great teachers who make great decisions, but we also learn uh, what not to do in those observations, too. So. One of my professors here um, has a saying, which is from another professor, I'm sure, the long lineage of this, they say, all lessons are lessons <laughs> and we i think like you just said that that scenario which thank you for sharing that for our listeners um because i know so many people have great connection to what you just shared and that moment for you i'm so grateful that we're having this conversation with you today um because you were able to continue, but that moment for so many people would be the door closing and not being able to see a window through that. And so what you just shared about using this traumatic experience to inform your, your teaching and to ensure that no one who ever works with you will ever feel that way, will ever feel that way. Um, it's just, Thank you for being so open. Thank you. Thanks for the question, truly.
Well, I mean, it's been fascinating to hear people's answers, like very truly. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I am so glad that you continued and are in this field and are a leading figure, some might say. So it's a shame that um, that particular person can't associate their name with you at this point. And I, you know, what you were saying, this is like the last thing before we get to our ending questions, but I was thinking about the uniform concept that you were just talking about in terms of like putting on your suit and that felt like a piece of armor to you and... I, I we've talked about this briefly with some of our other interviewees of, you know, being a woman in this field, there mm. there isn't the suit. You know what I mean? Like there are suits for women. They may or may not fit your body <laughs> um, because we have hips and, you know, it's not made for us. Um, and there's something that can be empowering about finding a piece of clothing that that can elevate your experience and make you feel powerful and like you belong and like you are ready to to do this task but there there is also that concept of why do we care why why are you looking at my tattoos why does it matter if my nose is pierced why does it matter if my if my underwear is slightly able to be seen why does it matter if you can see my butt you know like these are (laughs) why does it matter that my navy suit isn't like your navy suit isn't like (laughs) yeah and why why does this matter you know it just the talking about things in this field that need to change like bare minimum let's not talk about people's bodies (laughs) like for starters at all and let's respect the fact that this is a human being in front of you i mean our bodies are so i think one of the reasons why honestly is because our bodies are so essential to our craft as conductor as singer as so many components of it right but I mean, like, there are so many stories that I could share about someone touching my hair, about someone commenting on my skin or things like that. But, you know, uh, yes, it's about looking, again, like, it's 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 not necessarily looking at the body as something that needs to be fit within a colonial patriarchal heteronormative box. It is celebrating the body and its infinite nature to be. Right? Like, my my husband... Uh, his profession um, is um, in higher education administration. And when we get ready for conferences, I have to like think about like how I choose to show up to a space now. Cause I told myself, you know, like one, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that wants to wear a suit, right? And that is me speaking on behalf of my non-binary identity and is my mafu identity. Like there's so much like, situations of like, is this a safe space in which I can present the way I want to present? Um, does, if I show up to this space in this particular way, will I get judged because of my native identity, my indigenous identity, my non-binary identity, right? So then I've realized that like, once you are given the gift of positionality in the profession, you then have a responsibility to live your truth, right? So that the next generation won't have to like carry that burden. And I think that's like speaking to the three of us right now, I really think that that's kind of our responsibility is to show up to these spaces as ourselves. Um, Because when my husband goes to a conference, his conference has no professional decorum, right? They're like, show up how you feel comfortable. Right. And this is for like, this is the conference for deans, 
university presidents, presidents and things like that. And to have that type of dialogue and way of being, I think is important. And that's something that I would really like to see happen for our profession, because our uniform at the University of, university of Hawaii is not necessarily wearing a particular way of presenting your body in a colonial context, but we decided to partner with the native and indigenous designer and say, you are a part of our story. Please, we wanna share our story of Hawaii with the world and help us do that. Like that as a concept in which perhaps the new way of wearing our stories can be about, have you collaborated with a local designer? Are you celebrating local businesses? Are you, how sustainable are we do? Are we are we showing up and showing up up to spaces with what we put on our bodies? Like that's the next conversation I want to see happen. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I know that the state of Arizona is so lucky to have you standing on their ground and to begin this process in a new in a new state in a new place with so much to uncover um and to be impacted by you and for students the students there to impact you as well so we have a couple last questions they should they're supposed to be fast we've realized they're semi-fast so you take the time that you need um for our fast five first question is favorite current choral octavo or a composer recommendation for the listeners um, my favorite choral octavo right now is um, the, the Songs of the Rubaiyat by Adolphus Hellstork. One of my graduate students is preparing it for his recital, and I've just been so enamored by the writing and the text treatment and just the harmonic language is just so lush. Um, and I find myself humming it um, wherever I go. And he's a composer worth bridging into the conversation more. So that's currently what's on my brain. Mm, great answer. I don't know that piece. I'm familiar with Hale Stork though. So I'm gonna have to give it a listen. <laughs> um, all right, question number two. What is one misconception about you? <laughs> uh, that I don't like Bach. I love Bach. Bach is, uh, I am a nerd about Bach. Um, and I think Bach is an important person um, and has taught me a lot about um, internalizing rhythm, um, about um, manifesting melismas in a beautiful way. Um, and um, my voice feels at home when I sing Bach. So our next question, now that we've had this um, conversation with you, that we have unpacked so many things, typically we say, what is one word to describe you on the podium? And we are going to change this question to say, what is one word to describe you when engaging with an ensemble on the ground that you stand on? Open. Mm, yes. Oh, it's so good. Amazing. <laughs> all right. Like, if we change this for all, all 12 people, we I want to go back and change my answer. <laughs> um, okay, number four out of five. What is a favorite choral memory? 
Um, I remember um, when, so I was married in January 11th, 2020, right before the world shut down. Um, but um, at this point in time, Karen's health was really declining. Um, so, but a, rem a memory that I had was that um, my students um, FaceTimed her and my students sang um, a Filipino love song called Dahil Sayo, which is one of my grandmother's favorite songs. So they sang that for our wedding and um, Karen was there watching them sing. And it was just, it's, it's, there's something about watching your teacher watch you teach your students. That is one of the most beautiful things to me. Um, and for that to happen on my wedding, I was a hot mess express, hot mess. Um, but it was one of the most powerful moments of my life. Well, that it was gorgeous. This last one is not. This <laughs> One is, <laughs> can you share um, some sort of choral blooper or musical blooper that you have experienced um, at, in any capacity? It could be solo, it could be ensemble. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes, actually. Um, so this was right before my, uh, my first master's recital in Oregon. Um, and for those of you, I mean, most people know this about me, but like, I love a catwalk moment. So like when I walk on stage, like I take that seriously. I'm like, all right, am, am I gonna channel Halston right now? Who am I channeling right now? What am I gonna do? What's the hip actions? Like how much am I gonna sway? I, I like, I love a catwalk moment. Um, and so, um, I was walking off, I was walking onto stage. I had my music with me. And then of course I forgot to tie my shoelaces. And then I literally eat it on stage, almost fall off stage. And my binder of music opens up, falls everywhere onto the first stage, like onto the Dean's lap, onto uh, Dr. Paul's lap. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, do I transfer out? Uh, do I just leave? Um, so I was like, what do I do? How do I salvage this moment? So I stand up and I, and I said, please give us uh, two minutes. Um, everything was planned. That was planned. And so then I go off stage. I like cry in a corner and my cohort mates are like, it's going to be okay. They get, and we're such a family. They grab all of the music, bring it back, take a breath do it all over again and it was fine but oh my gosh I <laughs> that's why I have such this I have this obsession with anyone that wears shoes in the ensemble I'm like make sure you tie your shoes did you tie your shoes everyone look at your laces did you tie your shoes which is why I only wear toms so if you ever see me I only have slip-on shoes problem solved never again <laughs> Well, you should know you're not the first and I'm sure you won't be the last person to bring that up as their choral blooper. So it turns out many humans fall <laughs> on stages. <laughs> I will say I enjoyed your uh, lead up, though, with the exploration of the catwalk. And I feel like so many people left that out, but they really wanted to include it. So we appreciate we appreciate you bringing that in. Uh, 
Oh my gosh. Well, Dr. Sablan, this has been just so wonderful to have you here. And thank you for all of the beautiful words that you shared today and the vulnerability and um, just everything that you brought to this podcast. And I'm sure we would love to have you on again because there's so much more that we could dive into. Um, but just thank you so much for being here and taking this time. And I know you Sorry. No, you go. No, I was going to say thank you to the both of you for just these incredible questions and for creating such a space of safety. I really enjoyed my time. And we appreciate not only what you brought today, but what you're bringing to the field and know that we see you and so many see you and appreciate and understand the time and um, the honesty and the intention that you bring to our community. And so we're grateful for that. If you haven't seen us on social media, we are there. You should check us out at conductor um, pod on Instagram and conduct.her on Facebook. And we can't wait for this episode to air. Um, look for it coming soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Conductor. conductor.